All right, Jesse, our last story was a pretty wild ride in Sin City. What do you have for me this week? When a 68-year-old socialite is murdered in her home after a night of playing bridge, suspicion falls on her doctor husband. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about maters, haters, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you're on Facebook, swing on by the Love Murder private discussion group and say hi to me and Andy. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support, including 33 bonus episodes. Woot woot! And this week we are recording this episode about 36 hours after our last recording. Literally. Yes, so there's no (laughs) new patrons to shout out just yet. Keep in mind, if you've signed up recently, that we're recording a couple weeks ahead. So do not fear, you will be getting your shout out. And in the meantime, if you would like to do something nice for the pod, please go ahead and leave us a nice review and make me feel good about myself. (laughs) Yeah, the reviews are always very nice, especially when we're together and we're going to be together in exactly a week. Yes, that's true. So that's why we're getting ahead, guys, because Andy's traveling here for work and then I'm traveling down to New York and we're going to LA together. Yay! Huzzah! Well, I'm really excited about this one and... I have to say, I think that this is a good one to end our string of pre-recordings on. Okay, great. So let's jump in. Betty Jean Ross has been the housekeeper for Dr. and Mrs. Rogers for only about a month when she lets herself into their grand house in Searcy, Arkansas on September 26, 1974. The house itself is beautiful. A stately two-story white house with tall columns out front It sits only a quarter mile from the center of town, and it's the type of house that makes people stop and stare. It's the kind of house, you know how it is, Andy, where there's always a house that you have that you drive by or you walk by and you're like, oh, if I won the lottery, that's the house I would buy. Yep. Yeah. I've always had a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me too. I still have some in like distant towns I haven't lived in in years. But yeah, this was that home. They said it was the most stately manor house in all of Cersei. Wow. The house was classic, elegant, and aging gracefully, and the same could be said for Mrs. Fern Cohen Rogers. The socialite was described as the picture of Southern grace and charm. Now 68, she had raised two successful children to adulthood, supported her doctor husband in opening a hospital that bared the Rogers name, and had become a competitive bridge player. Wow. Mrs. Rogers was very well-liked. Betty Jean had only known her for a short time, but had already felt that she was warm and welcoming and a good and kind employer. She rarely saw the doctor around, and based on what little evidence she saw of him ever being in the house, Betty believed that the 40-year-plus marriage might be strained. He's just not around a lot. Perhaps everything wasn't perfect in the perfectly pretty and all-put-together home. 
Betty Jean let herself in the back door, collecting the paper. I guess there was a local paper at the back door for some reason, and the Little Rock paper was at the front door. Okay. So she let herself in. She got the local paper. And then she was making her way through the living room to go to the front door where the Little Rock paper would be. And as she rounds the corner, right in front of the stairs, in front of the door, she sees a pair of legs. Not what you want to see first thing in the morning. No. So she runs over and she realizes that it's Mrs. Rogers. And she is lying near the bottom of the stairs, kind of also near the door. She's still fully dressed in a dark skirt and a red jacket. At that point, she thinks, oh my goodness, Mrs. Rogers, who is an older lady, now 68, isn't very old when we think about what time it is in our lives. No. This is 1974. And life expectancy was actually 68 years old at this time in 1974. So she thinks this elderly lady fell down the stairs and she says, oh, Mrs. Rogers, did you fall down the stairs? She is non-responsive. So Betty Jean runs to the phone and she calls for an ambulance to come to the house. And this is back in a time and in a town where she could just say, come to Dr. Rogers' house. And the operator goes, senior or junior? Like, that's how much everybody knows each other in this town. And she said, senior, I think, because she'd only been working there for a month. And she was right. And then as she hangs up, she's walking back to be next to Mrs. Rogers. And she realizes that her body really isn't in the right position for having fallen down the stairs. Yeah, but obviously, it's not the first thing that you think about. No. So she walks back over and she said that at that point, she had chills and she was trembling. She realized something was very wrong. And when she looked closer, she got down on her hands and knees to look at Mrs. Rogers. She realized that there was a huge dark red pool of blood underneath her head that she had not noticed previously. And it hit her like a ton of bricks that what had happened to Mrs. Rogers was no accident. The cops would soon arrive on the scene and quickly come to the same conclusion. The Cersei socialite and loving mother had been shot dead with two bullets to the head. What? So at the beginning, because this house is so nice and everybody knows it's the doctor in town who owns the hospital, they're thinking the only thing that makes sense is that this was a burglary gone wrong. Absolutely. Because who else could have wanted this nice 68-year-old lady dead? The answer would arrive with a shocking but poorly guarded secret relationship and the following story of infidelity, gambling, betrayal, and a cold-blooded murder that would shake a community to its core. My main source today is a book, A Murder in Circe, by authors Deanna Hamby-Nall and Mike S. Allen. It's a great true crime book, and you guys can also find it on Audible if you're interested. So let's go back a little and talk about the absent Dr. Porter Rogers at this point and his loving wife, Fern. Porter and Fern had met in Circe in late 1929 when he was about 25 years old and she was around 23. Wow. Yes. Because they're up there by 1974. I think he was 70 and she was 68 when Fern's murder occurred. Porter was a hardworking Arkansas farm boy who had only been able to attend medical school because he did have one uncle that had somehow made it rich or at least comfortable enough to be able to afford something like going to college and going to medical school. And that uncle had really 
invested in Porter because he believed in him. The rest of the family wanted to help, but there was just no way they could string the money together. But he was known to have a very good work ethic. After his internship, Porter moved back to Arkansas because he had gone to medical school in Detroit. And he made the acquaintance of Fern Cohen. Fern was bright, capable, educated, and she came from a good family. She had a degree from college in speech therapy, which was, of course, something that we're talking about in the 1920s, was very rare for a woman to have. The match seemed quite promising, and the couple married in 1932. It was tough times, though, and the newlyweds struggled to make ends meet during the Great Depression. But Fern and Porter were determined to make it and start a family and a practice for Porter, of course. Maybe Porter was a little too determined to make money at any cost because less than a year into their marriage, he was arrested for passing counterfeit bills. What? Yeah, he was caught with funny money and it turns out him and a couple other guys were printing it as well. Whoa. And this is the beginning of us noticing that Porter pretty much only looks out for himself. That this was a scrappy farm kid who had a super intellect, who was going to beg, barter, and steal to achieve the things he wanted in life. And having that kind of drive is very powerful. When people pull themselves up by their bootstraps, especially during the Great Depression, that's impressive. When they resort to criminal means to do it, less so. Yeah, totally. In November of 1933, Porter pled guilty and was sentenced to three years in prison. And with some help from a good attorney, Porter managed to get his sentence reduced to only five years of probation. Unfortunately for Porter, he had already been stripped of his medical license due to the conviction. So he was a doctor with a very expensive education who was unable to practice medicine. To make matters worse or just more complex, Fern had just given birth to their first child, a son named Porter Jr. Oh my gosh. Fern was obviously beyond upset at the predicament that her husband's illegal activities had put them in. It did not seem like she had any idea that he was up to this. Okay. I mean, I feel like a pregnant wife wouldn't. No. I think that's definitely something he was doing on the side to tell her everything's going to be fine, honey. I got this. She put those complicated feelings about him getting himself in trouble that way and doing something illegal aside, and she was his biggest supporter. During this whole period when they had basically said that they were going to downgrade his sentence to probation, she ended up rallying the community to write letters of support and persuade the state medical board to reinstate Porter's medical license. So she really went to bat for him. She was successful in the end, and Porter was allowed to resume practicing medicine after two years. So he had five full years of probation, two years without his medical license, and then he was back. He set forth to show Fern and the community that they had made the right call in supporting him, that he was a good horse to bet on. He did a really good job. He built a wonderful practice in Searcy, and he was known as a good doctor who never allowed anyone to go without care. Oh, okay. He would bend over backwards to make sure that everyone got the medical treatment that they deserved and figure out a payment system or a barter system or just do it pro bono if that was what was necessary to make sure that the community was healthy and cared for, even if it was his own dime. I mean, that's what a good doctor does, to be honest. That's what it used to be, like an old school town doctor, the one everyone saw for everything and knew your name and your grandma and your kids and would take care of you if something went wrong. It's a very different world we're living in now. 
He also provided employment opportunities for people who were down and out. And he was, in general, in the early days, very well regarded by the townspeople. In the early 1940s, Porter purchased a sanitarium that was going out of business and revamped it and reopened it as the Porter Rogers Hospital. Wow. Authors Nal and Allen wrote that when locals were asked about the Rogers Hospital, many said that they were born there, like a vast majority of, depending on the right age range, said that they were born there. And quite a few also said that they were delivered by Dr. Rogers himself. Wow. (laughs) The hospital became a bustling business with more than a dozen rooms, up-to-date equipment, and dozens of staffers. So now it's actually a business. Porter was seeing maybe too many patients, though, because this this starts a drift into him being obsessed with work, being at work, not really being home with the kids. And by the time that they opened up the hospital, they had also bought the very beautiful house that I was talking about at the beginning, and they had had an adorable baby girl as well. So at this point, Fern, who had always worked alongside Porter, is relegated more to the home which was her goal. She wanted to be home and raise her children, but they're seeing less and less of each other. And he's getting more and more absorbed into work. Absorbed into work and also being a big man. Like this is a guy that success goes to his ego. Success is feeding the beast. From the outside, everyone thought that they were basically Cersei royalty. That's what they were referred to because they were good looking and they had this beautiful family. Their son was significantly older than their daughter because I think that they waited for quite a while to get back on their feet and focus on him getting his license back, then getting his practice, then opening the hospital, of course. But they had this really smart young man. Like he was still a child, but yeah, like child. And then they had this beautiful baby girl. And this gorgeous house that everyone loved, it seemed like if you're just looking through the fence here, that this is the dream life. And in fact, it was pretty good for a while. They said that the first 10 years of their marriage was very, very good. The hospital started making so much money that they had just extra funds. And they started breeding and showing horses, like championship horses. Which is, I think, a very Southern thing. It's like you get some money and you you start having fancy horses or fancy dogs or like owning a racehorse. It's a rich person thing anywhere. Yes, it is. <laughs> Just because it takes like yeah, it takes a lot of money to maintain any horse, let alone a racehorse or a champion show horse. And so as the kids grew up, they started growing apart. And Fern really threw herself into civic organizations. She was in everything from the PTA to the Medical Auxiliary Club. She was said to host several bridal or baby showers just for the townspeople because her house was so big that it could accommodate everyone. That's really sweet. Yes, it was just a center of society. And she threw herself in that and her children and then became a competitive bridge player as well as they got older and they didn't need her as much. So she was filling her life with other things to make up for the absence that she was feeling with Porter. Now, Porter had some very legitimate reasons to be away from the home. I don't know if he ever hired any other doctors to work at this hospital. So it might have been a dozen nurses and just him, or he might have had some underlings. I am not sure it wasn't stated explicitly, but I do know that he saw patients around the clock. 
And he was working very hard to build the hospital business out. And he was the one who was in charge of all the finances and figuring out what medical equipment companies to use and everything. So he's at the hospital quite a bit. So that feels like I understand running a business. I understand being a doctor means you are on call all the time, especially if there's not a lot of other doctors in the area. However, there was some other very, very not legitimate reasons why he wasn't home and why there might be a growing divide between himself and his wife. Let me guess. <sighs> other women and some bad monetary decisions. So it looks like he had bought some property. So he, they also owned a farm together. He bet on some very risky business deals too, and he would not inform Fern about this. So despite the fact that the hospital was doing very well, he was losing money left and right, and they were getting in debt up to their eyeballs. There was a rumor that he was having an affair with somebody he worked with at the hospital, which is very likely why he was never home as well. As their bills piled up, he also resorted to illegal insurance schemes to make money um. and other not so great activities. This is a guy who will take whatever he can get. There was a scam where he would have a handful of people come in and say that they had X, Y, and Z procedures done so that the insurance companies would compensate him. And then he would split the money with the liars who lied about what they had had done. Whoa. I mean, and he wasn't even really splitting the money with them. He was paying them like five to $10, but then he's getting hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars on the back end. That's like so unethical. So unethical. And around this time too, as he got a little older, the feeling about Dr. Rogers changed in the town. Well, he had always been very highly regarded as somebody who took care of the community. Now people were saying, maybe find another doctor because he was performing unnecessary surgeries. Like if he was already in there, he's like, I'm going to just take out an appendix or a gallbladder and charge that to the insurance company as well. So savage. Yeah. So they were like, don't go to that man anymore. So he's like a surgeon, an OBGYN, a general practitioner. Yes, everything. It's crazy that that was like allowed. It is so crazy that that was allowed. But that was, again, the old school one doctor in town who does everything, apparently. Oh, my God. Despite all this sketchiness, they still didn't have any money. So goodness knows what he was spending on it. We'll talk a little bit later. He gets a fondness, a taste for Las Vegas, which is where we were with last week's episode. So he starts gambling and he's not very good at it because he keeps losing. So that might be where some of his money was going to. The other money might have been going to his affair partners. So at that point, Porter wanted to take out new loans on the farm and farmland that he and Fern owned. But she said no. She's like, I'm not signing anything because I know you're out there screwing around, gambling our money away, and I'm not going to let you sign anything away or get us further in debt. So maybe if I say no, you'll be forced to straighten your shit out. So she put her foot down. And their son, Porter Jr., who was now a doctor himself, who was practicing in Little Rock, and his sister had to get involved so that they could bail their dad out because their mom refused to get a loan. And that's the daughter. And Porter ended up securing a second loan for $50,000 themselves to support their father so he wasn't losing the home and the land and the hospital. Was Porter Jr. working at the 
No, he was working at a different hospital in Little Rock. But yeah, as soon as they had done this, which I don't know if their mother said, guys, don't do it. I'm not letting him. But they did it. It seems like Porter was back traveling to Vegas every other weekend and spending lots of money. So he clearly didn't learn a lesson at all. No. He was just over 60. So Fern was 58 or 59 at this point, And the gulf between them was widening. It was about to get worse. Porter's insurance scheme was about to be discovered, as well as the fact that he had been taking hospital funds for his own personal use. Porter also had a heart attack around this time, sometime after he turned 60, I believe. And at that point, he sold the Rogers Hospital to a Little Rock-based company. But whatever profit he had made after paying off his debts was soon spent. He had a ton of casinos coming after him for money by early 1970. This was particularly savage. In the book, A Murder in Circe, they included a real note that was written by somebody from Caesar's Palace. And I thought that it was like (laughs) pretty savage. This was a bill from Caesar's Palace dated January 29th, 1970. And it said, Dear Dr. Rogers, it is embarrassing for me to have to contact you in reference to your return checks. I am equally embarrassed for you that you allowed this to happen. Enclosed is an envelope for your convenience. Kindly remit $2,400 to clear your account. Thank you. Chuck Bargiel, credit department. So funny. I think it's so funny because now we get these regular letters that are just like, you're due, you're past due. Please do this or this will be turned off. Please do this or it'll go to collections. The scolding. I think I'm going to use that for some of my outstanding debtors to my company. You need to say that. I'm embarrassed for you that I'm chasing you for $500, to be honest. It is embarrassing for me to have to contact you about this matter. And I am equally embarrassed for you that you have allowed this to happen. (laughs) So good. And did that go to the house? That went to the house. It seems like Fern was aware of what was going on a little bit, at least. And that that's four years later is by September of 1974 is when Fern gets murdered. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. And at the point of the murder, Fern and Porter were virtually estranged. He was spending long stints away from the family home, camping out basically in a motel. Wow. Okay. Which also costs money. Which also costs money. I don't think this was a very nice one, though. Yeah. But still. Yeah. Which is precisely why the staff knew that it did not seem like their marriage was going very well because he was never around. He still had access to the family home. They were still legally married. There was not even a separation on the books. I don't know if it was just because that's not what you did or their kids or the fact that they are very old at this point, but it just seems like, I don't know what Fern was doing. Maybe she was just waiting him out for her grandkids' sake. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, after 40 years, like... What do you do? Yeah, I mean, she's kind of just living her life. They had been married for, I think at that point, 43, 44 years or something. I don't know if I would have like the energy to get a formal divorce and if he's already not living there. Yeah, if you're not planning on dating. And she wanted to make sure that she still had control, some control of what was going on, at least under her roof where her kids had grown up. And it's the South and in the 70s. And she's also considered a very high socialite on the social ladder here. And I think that she loved her life of being with her friends and and playing competitive bridge. And she loved her children. She loved her family. This was the only dark spot in her life was that 
from the very beginning of their marriage. She could not make that man walk on the straight and narrow. On the day of her murder, Fern went shopping. She was talking about trading in her car for another car. She also entertained her son, Porter Jr., when he stopped by for a surprise visit. And that made her kind of late. She was supposed to go out to dinner with her bridge partner before they went to a competition at the Elks Club. So they stopped and got Kentucky Fried Chicken on their way. (laughs) So funny. Yeah, there was actually a lot of Kentucky Fried Chicken. At one point, Porter gets Kentucky Fried Chicken too. I was like, is this a true crime story or an advertisement for Kentucky Fried Chicken? It's like in Google Maps when it's like, turn right at (laughs) 7-Eleven. Yes. (laughs) It seems like the competition went well. The tournament was a lot of fun, but it ended on a bad note. When all of the women were leaving, having had a great time, One of the bridge ladies fell in the dark parking lot and she managed to get very badly hurt. Oh, no. They didn't know it at the time, but she had managed to break both of her wrists in this fall. Oh, no. That would make playing bridge hard, no? Oh, yeah. You can't do anything. She's like, I can't drive. I need help. So this was a huge emergency. I think this woman was a little older as well. So Fern called her son. And said, we're going, and I think that they were rushed to what was once the Rogers Hospital, now had a different name because it had been acquired. And she had her son come meet them because she wanted her son to make sure that her friend was getting care. She also went with her friend Alma. So it's Fern, Alma, and some of the other bridge ladies had all gone to the hospital with the woman who had the broken wrists. And her son came, and he came back out after talking to the doctors because he was allowed in as a medical professional. And he said that she needed surgery on both of her wrists and they were both badly broken. So he said, that being said, she is really drugged up. She needs to go into surgery. You guys won't see her for several hours. So go home, get some rest and come back during visiting hours. Okay. And it seems like then Porter Jr. went back home to Little Rock and Fern dropped her friend Alma off. So... They drove to Alma's apartment, and I guess they talked for a little while in the car. Fern wanted Alma to go to Memphis with her the next day, but Alma had an appointment to get her permanent set that she could not miss. Permanent teeth set? No, the like her perm. Oh. Her permanent. <laughs> I'm fluffing my imaginary hair, guys. I was like, permanent teeth? Dentures? She had to go to the beauty salon. My grandma did that every week, like up until the day she died. She went to the beauty salon every week and got her perm set, got her hair set. So she said she could not go. And they ended up talking a little bit about how crazy it was that something so bad had happened and that they hoped their friend was okay. And then Alma said goodbye to Fern just past midnight. She went inside their house. She locked her doors. And Alma said that she was still thinking about her friend. But she did not yet know that what had happened to their friend with the broken wrist was only the second worst thing that would happen that evening and that Alma would never again see her friend Fern alive. If you ever find yourself needing just a little bit more mental clarity and looking for a way to supercharge your daily focus, then we're so excited to share more about today's sponsor, Cognitive Switch by Juvenescence. You guys know at home that both of us are basically running at max speed all of the time. Quite literally, I'm training for a half marathon, and I also will never, ever give up my whole read at least one book per episode research approach, and I like to read for fun as well. 
So it definitely means that there's some days that I am flagging or maybe burning the candle on both ends. I would say. Given all of that, finding ways to get an extra boost in focus and mental clarity without resorting to an IV drip of coffee is a total game changer. Cognitive Switch is a really unique product. Ketones are a type of evolutionary brain fuel that our bodies naturally produce when glucose is in short supply. Brains love them because they break down easily and produce a high amount of energy. Cognitive Switch's formula gives your body the building blocks to create its own ketones, the alternate and efficient fuel source your brain already loves, which is what makes that boost in your mental performance happen. I really am truly impressed. It also actually tastes really good. Ketones are notorious for being bitter, but Cognitive Switch actually tastes great. There's also an awesome flavorless powder version that you can just mix into whatever your favorite drink is. Believe it or not, I like using different flavors for different times of the day. I believe that. Yeah, (laughs) I have whole routines. It's important. Flavorless powder is great to get me going in the morning with my tea, but I really love the tropical flavor just to give me a little boost and feel like a little dessert in the afternoon. A little afternoon cocktail, you know. Exactly. Cognitive Switch is clinically proven to get you into brain-boosting ketosis in just 30 minutes. It contains no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial colors or flavors, is stimulant-free, and has a low glycemic index. Here's the exciting part. Cognitive Switch just launched, and for a limited time, our listeners can enjoy a special offer. Visit juvelabs.com slash lovemurder. That's J-U-V-L-A-B-S dot com slash lovemurder to get 20% off your order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to start your journey towards enhanced mental performance. Remember, by adding ketones to your routine with Cognitive Switch, you're doing something extra to support your brain. Unlock your brain's potential and experience the power of Cognitive Switch. Thanks again to Cognitive Switch for sponsoring today's episode. Jesse, there are so many people out there working so hard every day and still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. Ugh, I know. Life just doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. This product makes so much sense to me as a way to give people more choice and more control. It's essentially a way for people to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps and other modern financial challenges. Seriously, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the logistical timing of when your paycheck is going to hit. Make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It will really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So no one saw Fern from the time Alma saw her around midnight to when Betty Jean discovered her body the next morning around 8.30, 8.40 in the morning. 
While the police got word to Porter and their children, they also began processing the scene at the Rogers house. Fern had been shot through the right temple twice with a small caliber gun. It was clear by the spent shell casings that were found at the scene. That's like a mob murder. Yes. 25 caliber is what it ended up being when they did the autopsy. Jeez. It appeared that she had been shot at relatively close range and that she had been perhaps ambushed after she had come in and already shut the door. She was wearing the same outfit and coat that she had been wearing when she dropped Alma off. So she had not even had an opportunity to take her coat off. Pretty much right away, the detectives were sure that this was a targeted hit because at first they thought the only motive could possibly be burglary. But when they looked around, they saw that there were no signs of forced entry anywhere. So this perpetrator must have been able to get in the home somehow and had been potentially lying in wait for Fern. And the other thing was that her purse had been taken. They had found it dumped on the lawn. But even though it appeared that maybe some cash or checks were missing, the killer had also left a diamond-encrusted watch and a diamond-encrusted horseshoe brooch in the purse. Like, it's in the purse. And those two pieces of jewelry alone were worth over $30,000. Yeah, come on. So that seems odd. And also, she was still wearing two diamond rings on her hands. Seems like a last-minute attempt to make it look like a burglary. Exactly. And that's what they were thinking at this point, too. So naturally, if they're thinking who would want Fern Rogers dead, the only answer would be her husband, Porter. She doesn't have any other enemies in the world. And how did the killer get in the house? How did the killer get into the house? Exactly. So Porter had found out about it. He was eating at a restaurant. He was eating at, a, I think, a diner breakfast when they got a call because he ate at this place very frequently. It was his regular spot to let him know to get back to his house and that there had been an emergency. He had rushed to the house and he acted surprised. He acted upset. But one of Fern's friends had come over as well. And he said to her, well, this is all going on because she was trying to tell him how sorry she was. And she thought, oh, this must be so upsetting for you. And he said, well, it's probably more upsetting for the children because we've been estranged for a very long time. It's like, dude, that's not the time. You just say thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. Trying to like set up a case already. Yeah. So he's like, I just save your empathy and sympathy for the kids. Shan't waste them on me. You should also give your condolences to our children that I'm their father. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're at it. Well, you're giving condolences. So he told the authorities that he had spent the night in the motel where he'd been staying. Now, later, he has a totally different story for why he's staying at the motel. I think originally he did tell them the truth, which is that they hadn't been having a great time in their marriage. Later on, he spins this whole story trying to say it was because Fern was never home. And because he's a very important doctor, he needs an answering service. And that the motel had a switchboard and an answering service. And so living there and being able to get his messages at the motel was better for him as a very busy emergency. Ugh, unbelievable. That was obviously not the reason. Also kind of blaming Fern. She's like, she's running around all over the time. She's not home ever to get my important messages to me. She's playing bridge. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's his story. He's like, I was in the motel all night. Then I came and I had breakfast at this place. And that's when I found out about it. But they had also discovered that Porter had a 25 caliber automatic pistol registered in his name. A 25 caliber pistol was exactly what they believed had been the murder weapon based on the bullets they recovered from Fern's body. So he just loaned a gun to the killer or he was the killer? Or maybe, yes, that's what they're thinking. So he explained that it was at his office. So they went to his office, they got the gun, they tested the gun, and the gun had not been fired. It was definitely not the gun. They could prove that it hadn't been fired for a very long time. That's almost like a good cover-up, though, is if you have your killer use the same gun you have and then you show them your gun. Yes, and say, whoops, it wasn't mine. Twenty-five caliber pistol is very popular. So it's definitely not Porter, or at least Porter did not shoot this gun. And I believe that they did some sort of gunpowder residue, and it was, seemed clear right away that he was not the trigger man, but he is obviously involved. Yeah, it's also like, of course he's not getting his hands dirty with this. Yes. So they decided to drill down on Porter's alibi, and they uncovered a sordid but open secret, which is that Porter had spent most of the previous night with his receptionist and affair partner. Ew. What's even ewer is that this young woman who was named Peggy Hale was all of 21 years old, and this gentleman is 70 years old. Peggy. Peggy. What are you doing with Grandpa Peggy? Peggy. And I'm again, I'm going to remind you guys, this is 1974. We have done a couple older cases the last couple weeks. And people always on the Instagram are like, they're supposed to be 30? They're supposed to be 40? Are you kidding me? This is a different time. I mean, this man is only 70 years old, which is different in today's age. He looks one foot in the grave. This is doddering old grandpa in the corner. This is not like a sexy, viral man who's doing half marathons on the side just to prove he can. I mean, yeah, that's like he could almost be a great, great grandpa. He was older than her grandpa, for real. Oh, my God. I think that 50-year age difference might be a love murder record. Yeah. For May, December. Yeah. I think it is. Like, unless you're Pugh Hefner or, you know, these guys, Robert De Niro and what's his name, Al Pacino, are, like, having these babies now. I don't even understand that. But this guy is a small-town, broke-ass doctor. What are you doing? It's not Al Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> She's not boinking Al Pacino. And just who do you think you are, Porter Rogers, stepping out on wonderful ferns? Seriously. Okay, well, just who is Peggy and how the hell did this bizarre romance begin? Let's talk about it. Two years earlier, Peggy was a 19-year-old kid waitressing at Porter's favorite restaurant, oh, Bill's Grill. God. 19, and he's pushing 70. God. She was a very good-looking girl. Now, this is hard, guys. Our Instagram is going to be a mess this week because there are virtually no pictures of this case. I found her mugshot, but it is very, very, very blurry. Should we revert back to an old Andy Instagram? We might have to for this case, but I can only tell you basically what I read about descriptions of her looks because I could not even find a very clear picture of her. She was reportedly very, very attractive. So she's a good-looking girl. She also had a way of speaking to people that was very pleasing, especially men. Let's just say she had perfected the art of a playful banter that would ensure good tips. 
Now, nobody tipped better than creepy old Dr. Rogers, who started giving her $100 every time he came in. Which is probably like 1000 today, right? Yeah. I didn't even do the math on that one. It's a fuck ton is basically what it is. Because I remember working in 2006, 2007, and if somebody gave me a $100 tip, I'd be like losing my mind. And that was 40 years later. Soon Porter was coming in every day she worked. He always requested to sit in her section. In 1973, so now they've known each other for a year or two at this point, Peggy asked Porter to prescribe her some diet pills. She wanted to lose some weight. And he said that he would. He said that she should come pick them up at his office. Well, some hanky-panky began. It looks like it started with some kissing, and very quickly, these visits to his office turned into a full-blown sexual affair. At the time, she was 20, and he was 69, I believe. Oh. By the fall of 1973, roughly a year before Fern was killed, Peggy left her waitressing job, and she began working full-time as Porter's secretary. And he was paying her something like $500 a week, I think. Wow. Yeah, which is a lot at this time. Apparently, the two were so flagrant and some of the other staff were so angry about this that they quit. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine working? Oh, my gosh. So my dad is 76. He is still practicing as a dentist. And I also worked for him at various points during my teenage years and then when we came back to the East Coast for a little while. I cannot imagine if he started carrying on with somebody who worked for him who was in her 20s. I mean, it would be disgusting. Yeah, it's not a good move. Not a good look. And they were pretty flagrant about it. Despite what people thought and the fact that Fern definitely found out about this relationship, it seemed to just grow more serious with Porter even telling another nurse who was employed at the hospital that he was planning to leave Fern and marry Peggy. (sighs) Peggy knows what she's doing. Yeah, I was just going to segue into why on earth would this 19 or 20 or 21-year-old girl be interested in a man who was older than her grandfather? There's, of course, the obvious answer. Money. Money and status. Peggy very clearly enjoyed the money and the gifts that Porter lavished on her. They took many, many trips to Las Vegas together. I don't think she had any idea that he was in as much debt as he was because he's charging everything on credit and the bills are coming to his wife's house. Yeah. And he could explain everything. If he's living in a shitty motel, he could just say, well, I'm just waiting until we get divorced and I'm trying to save some money. (sighs) I don't know if Peggy had a very clear picture about what his real financial situation was. But I also think that Peggy had a very complex and damaging childhood that made romantic relationships harder for her. So trigger warning for sexual abuse. It wasn't her parents, although I think that their upbringing probably scarred her in a different way. Though they were kind and loving parents, they were very, very religious. And they wanted her to look and act and be a certain way. And I think that when she was growing up, they really did try to rein her in by restricting more things, becoming more strict, because that was the way that they were taught how you discipline children. And 
Peggy would end up full on revolting against all of their teachings and desires and discipline. I do think that they tried to reconcile that by the time she was in her early 20s. They were trying to figure out how they could be in her life without judgment. Okay. So they got there eventually, but I know that she seemed to fight back against a lot of the things that they were trying to push her into. But more than that was that she would later talk about a Sunday school teacher who was in his early 60s who she said, quote, tried to seduce her when she was only 13 years old. Now, tried to seduce is not what a 60-year-old man is doing with a 13-year-old girl, but this is 1974, and I don't believe she had the words or the understanding of what it really was. So she talks about how this man had come on to her or approached her, and she never gets into details about what exactly went down, but we can read between the lines. Peggy was also said to have pursued a teacher while she was in high school. But when you read the report of what this relationship was, the teacher had pursued her and asked her out. It only became a problem when she wouldn't stop being interested in him and he no longer was interested in her. Okay. So she had been victimized by a number of older adult males in her life. And we find this out later because this will end up obviously in the media. If I'm reporting it right now, you can imagine how big it was in 1974. And it was presented as her being this kind of like Amy Fisher, lethal Lolita, who had seduced her Sunday school teacher, had seduced her high school teacher. She had had sex with a high school boyfriend who, by the way, I looked up, was not a high school boyfriend. She was in high school. He was a decade older than her. She had had sex with him so that she wouldn't be a virgin for the teacher whom she really liked. Yeah. There was a whole mess of stuff. And even the high school boyfriend, who we will get into later because he becomes part of the story as well, her parents did not like him for good reasons, it sounds like. He was a lot older than she was and already out of school. So that was another point of contention that they forbade her from seeing this guy. And she's like, okay, cool. I'll go date my teacher. How do you like that? Peggy, I do believe, was out for the money in this particular situation. But we're going to keep in mind her textured past and how that might be motivating or motivating in a way that she doesn't even understand her decisions right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was clear that this is a girl that has been preyed upon and clearly struggles with any healthy romantic attachment. So right away, the police know that old Doc Rogers has an almost criminally young side piece. And shortly thereafter, they also found out that he was up to his neck in debt and his wife refused still to sign any papers that would allow him to sell their property or get more bank loans. He wants to impress his new girlfriend. She's saying, no, you can't do that. We have to conserve our estate. There's lots of motive here. They also found out that there was an incident in the hospital cafeteria where Fern had confronted Porter about the affair while he was sitting there eating lunch with Peggy in front of the whole hospital. And Fern was so embarrassed that she confronted him and asked Peggy to leave. And Peggy refused. And allegedly, Peggy denies this later, but allegedly people say that Peggy 
the girlfriend got up and slapped Fern, no, the wife, in the face. And this is the South in 1974, and people were already whispering about how she was so flagrant having this affair with this much, much older man that she never called Mrs. Rogers Mrs. Rogers. She derogatorily referred to her as Fern, which is also not something you do in the South. Wow. And then slapping her in the face in front of everyone in a hospital cafeteria. And what did the doctor do? Nothing. So disgusting. Now, Peggy later says that she did not slap her in the face, but she yelled at her and told her to leave. I mean, it could be the rumor mill. And when it went down the grapevine, somebody said, well, she might as well just slapped her in the face. And that's how it turned into (laughs) slapping her in the face. (laughs) So it's possible she didn't. But even given that she stood up and decided that she was going to yell at the wife of the man she's sleeping with. Unreal. The balls. Unbelievable. So there's that. And then there is also some scuttlebutt that Peggy also had a 25 caliber pistol that was not the one that belonged to her doctor boyfriend. And that it was frequently seen in her car. She also was living in a trailer at this point. So people said that they had seen it around and they knew she had that exact same gun. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So they found out that this gun had actually been purchased by her father because they looked up to see if any guns were registered to Peggy. They weren't. But there was one that was a 25 caliber pistol that was registered to her father, Milton. Now, Milton is a preacher. <laughs> Milton is... Not excited about this relationship his daughter was in, but he did know about it. In fact, they had come over to the house and declared their intentions to get married. But he told the police that they had been through so much with Peggy and that at the end of the day, they loved her so much that she basically said, if you don't approve of my relationship, even though it's infidelity, I'll never talk to you again and you'll never see me again. Yeah. And at that point, they said, We'd rather stay in her life and try to keep guiding her to the right path than cut her off for this terrible behavior. Yeah, I mean, that's a parent thing to do. So he said that she had moved out of their home and moved into this trailer at some point, but she was worried about people following her home or people harassing her. There might have been some level of harassment that she was concerned about. And so she had asked her father to get her a gun and teach her how to use it. And he said that he had, he had purchased her this 25 caliber pistol, but she was a terrible shot. He said that he had tried to teach her in the backyard. So there were going to be some spent shell casings in the backyard if they needed to match anything. But they wanted to get over and talk to Peggy right away and see where this gun was and hear her story. So they went over to her trailer and she claimed that she was with Porter at the motel and they too had had some Kentucky fried chicken the night of the murder, weirdly. This was something also that the police noticed because they went to the Kentucky Fried Chicken and Porter had picked up food, but he had picked up so much more food than for just two people. He had picked up something like a gigantic bucket of chicken and four roast beef sandwiches, which is a lot for two people. And that'll come into play later because there was another person there, but they don't mention it at this time. So she says that they went to his motel room and they were reading or watching TV or hanging out. And he went and got the Kentucky Fried Chicken, brought it back. They ate it there until around somewhere between 1130 and midnight. 
And at that point, she wanted to go home to her parents' house and not to her trailer where she she still had a room at her parents' house. And of course, I think that they're trying to set up an alibi. So they ended up going to her parents' home and they said that her parents were still awake. I don't know if they woke them up at that point. They said that they chatted for about 15 to 20 minutes and then Porter left to go back to his motel. And she said that she knew he went straight back to the motel because she thought of something she had to ask him and she called him at the motel and he was there right when he said he was going to be and that her mother was still awake at that point and her mother overheard them talking on the phone with her at her parents' house and him at the motel. As for the gun, Peggy said that she was an awful shot, which has been established. And she said that she had been in her trailer and Porter was there and he was sleeping in the bedroom and she thought that the gun was jammed or she was trying to fix it and she actually discharged the gun accidentally in the trailer while Porter was asleep. This bullet had gone through the kitchen floor and lodged somewhere in the bottom of the trailer. What? And she said at that point it was so scary and she thought something was wrong with the gun that she decided to get rid of it. So she gave it to a guy she was dating. So it sounds like there was some crossover between this guy, Jerry, she was dating and Porter if he was at her place. And she gave it to this guy, Jerry, and then Jerry died. What? (laughs) Well, he did it. I guess one of her boyfriends died. I think it was just like a car accident or something. It wasn't anything sinister. But she's like, I gave it to him. And then five months before the murder, so five months ago, He died, and of course I wasn't going to go to his grieving family and be like, where's my gun? So who knows where the gun is? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Convenient story that your dead ex took the murder weapon. And that you have no idea where it is. No idea where it is. So at that point, the detectives are like, Peggy, baby, this is looking bad for you. This is looking bad for you, sweetheart. You have motive. You're having an affair with the doctor. Everybody knows it. You were seen publicly fighting with her, with the murder victim. And we know for a fact that the gun that killed Fern Rogers was a 25 automatic pistol of the very same type that you magically can't find, that everyone knows was yours and saw you with. So the only way we're going to be able to clear you is if we, one, find that bullet and can compare it to the ones found in Mrs. Rogers, and then we can say this is definitely not shot from the same gun. And number two, if you take a lie detector test, that will also help clear your name because it'll show that you're being truthful when you say you don't know anything about what happened to her. Yep, exactly. And she agrees. She agrees to both of these things. So they got to find the bullet now, dig it out. They also go to her dad's house and they collect those bullets from where they had done the target practice. And Peggy went in for a polygraph. But why she did all these things, we don't know, because the bullets were a perfect match and she failed the lie detector test. No, I thought you were going to say she at least passed that. No. They also brought in her parents and both of Porter and Fern's kids as well. There was a ton of people that they brought in for the polygraph because they assumed that somebody might also be involved in this. So they were trying to figure out who. And only Peggy was deceptive and specifically deceptive around the questions involving that she had some sort of foreknowledge or an idea that Fern was going to get murdered or that she was somehow involved with it. (laughs) Andy, 
one of my big passions recently has been reading about the science of longevity. Really? (laughs) She says that like she doesn't know. Yep. And you know what is one of the most consistent things that just about every resource and scholar and doctor and scientist in the field agrees on? That hanging out with your best friend actually prolongs your life. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of true too. The social aspect is very important. But aside from that, that there is basically nothing more important for your body and your brain than sleep. Poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, lower productivity, and brain issues down the road. Yep, I have heard that. And that sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count. White blood cells protect our body against illness and disease, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. Simply put, sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and largely dictates how we perform in our days. That's why for me, having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. So obviously, for me, that involves time away from screens, maybe a scented candle, an occasional warm bath, and now I'm really excited about this, our new sponsor, Beam. We are so excited to introduce Beam Dream. It's pretty much a health hot cocoa for sleep. Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up totally refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. So Andy and I have different (laughs) problems with sleep. I'm somebody that has a very hard time falling asleep. Andy has a harder time staying asleep. Also, if you have like half of an over-the-counter sleep aid, you are groggy as heck. Yes. Meanwhile, they can never be strong enough for me. I'm like taking like double the recommended dosage and still (laughs) taking me an hour to go to bed. (laughs) Yep. So I have to admit, whenever I hear about especially all natural ways to get to sleep, I can be a little skeptical because it's impossible to knock me out. Oh my gosh, you guys, this worked so well. I was shook that it worked so well. And it was so pleasant. It's just this warm little barely any calories hot cocoa treat. And then I drifted off to slumberland. We did it the same night without knowing. And I texted Jesse in the morning when I woke up three hours after when she's up. And we both just gushed about how well we slept and how great we felt the next day. And Jesse's sleep statistics were amazing and off the chart. My sleep tracker gave me a 91 for the first time in months. So we're very excited to share that today our listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has literally never tasted better. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code LOVEMURDER for up to 40% off. So this was a bad gamble on Peggy's part. This whole thing is a bad gamble, which sounds like she's in good company with Porter because it sounds like he was a bad gambler as well. Yeah, but also like 
at 21, you don't really have that much life experience to know what the right no. thing to do is. <laughs> You're, you're a just child. faking it till you make it. You're like, well, maybe it'll like you have some magical realism happening where you're just hoping it all works out despite any practical reason that any of us can see that it will not. Yeah. <laughs> Babe. So they have enough evidence on Peggy to arrest her at this time, but they do not have enough on Porter because right now it's her romantic rival, her gun. He hasn't taken a lie detector test. She's failed her lie detector test. Yep. So they have enough to arrest her, but not quite Porter, even though they strongly believe that he is involved in this. They do not believe that Peggy just went AWOL and acted alone and killed Fern because somebody had to have given the keys to the killer. Yeah. And also, like, it's all ultimately his fault because he's the one married to her. Yes. And also it seemed that this hit was specifically set up when she'd be coming home from bridge. So who knows that? Her husband knows that. I mean, I'm shocked he knows that, to be honest. <laughs> I think she did it for years. I think it was her Wednesday night thing. And it also might have been one of those things where she's like, if you want to come in and grab your things when I'm at bridge so I don't have to see your face... That's when I'll be out. <laughs> so I have to see your fucking mug. Exactly. Also, they know that this guy is a liar and a cheat and untrustworthy for so many reasons because they also found out about the insurance fraud that he was being investigated for this insurance fraud. Oh, my God. Bad record. They found out, too, that he had, I don't know what it's exactly called, but he had been stripped of his ability to prescribe certain levels of drugs, certain classes of drugs, because it had been found out that he was prescribing Dilaudid. Oh, my God. Which is an insane, insane opioid. It's what they give cancer patients that are in terrible agony before you die. He had been prescribing this to the same guy twice a week, full prescriptions for over a year. That man had also been going to other doctors and was selling it on the street. He wasn't even using it, or he might have been using it and selling it, but we all know you don't get high on your own supply. Well, some people do. <laughs> You're not supposed to. <laughs> and so he was caught selling it. And of course, when they investigated, they found out that the number one guy who was giving him these drugs was Dr. Porter Rogers. I wonder if he was making money off of that. That's what I think. Given the insurance scam, I think he was in on the deal. However, they could not prove there wasn't a money trail because, of course, this guy's not dealing and writing him checks. <laughs> He's got bookkeeping. <laughs> yeah. There was no money trail that could connect him to paying Dr. Rogers, which, of course, he's coming to get the prescription. He probably just gives him a wad of cash then when they're in a— oh, yeah. come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. So what they could get him for is that, obviously, this is an abuse of writing opioid prescriptions. Even if he genuinely believed that this guy was somehow in that level of pain that he needed that much Dilaudid. So they're like, yeah, you're not writing any more prescriptions. And the other thing that we're going to talk about later as we move further through this investigation is that I do not think that he was in his right mind completely. He was getting older. He was getting more senile. However, I think that he plays into that when it suits him. Yeah. Okay. 
he's like, oh, I was confused. Oh, I must have thought that I was writing these scripts for like three different patients. Oh, no. You're so senile that you didn't realize you're banging a 21-year-old. <laughs> also, oh my gosh, at one point, Peggy's getting interviewed by the police and they're asking her about her sex life with this decrepit old man. And she said that he was very hearty and that they had had sex five times in a 14-hour period. Oh, so he's definitely writing himself Viagra. He is 100% writing himself a lot of Viagra. As much delighted as that guy got, he's giving himself Viagra. Oh, my God. Wow. So, yeah, he's able to do that, but he can't remember whose prescription he's writing at this point. Jeez Louise. Yeah. So... They know that this guy is not trustworthy and that if he wants his wife out of the picture, then he's going to stop at nothing until she's out of the picture in a way that will financially benefit him. And so, as they say, if you're trying to romance a man, the way to his heart is through his stomach. Well, if you're trying to throw a guy in jail, the way to incarceration is through his side piece. Every time you say that, I always think you're going to say through his dick. <laughs> Well, I feel like that's like the underlying real message somewhere. Yeah. Through his stomach. (laughs) Wink, wink. So they're like, our best bet is to lean on Peggy. There's a ton of evidence against her. She's only 21 years old. She's got her whole life to live. Not like him. (laughs) No, he's got good two years, maybe, this guy. He's about to serve a life sentence no matter what. (laughs) Oh. Oh, my God. So they arrested Peggy and they presented her with all of the evidence against her. She was kind of surprised by this, which I'm surprised by because it's very obvious. My detector test, babes. Like this was was a long time coming. You should have been prepared for this. The detectives say, look, we know you're involved, but we also do not believe that you pulled the trigger. She said, no, I would never. I never wanted to hurt Mrs. Rogers. Like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But we know you did not actually literally kill her, but you know who did. And if you don't talk to us, then you're going to go down for the whole thing. Porter's people are going to make it seem like you are a love-obsessed young woman who wanted to become his wife and that you killed Mrs. Rogers all on your own. It's your gun. Everyone saw you being aggressive to her in the cafeteria. Maybe they don't believe that nice Mr. Rogers who delivered them and their babies is the one who did this to his wife. And at that point, Peggy is like, oh, shit. And she began to sing like a canary. (laughs) A little cute 21-year-old canary. Exactly. Little Tweety Bird. So she did not just roll on Doc. She also told the police that there was someone else involved, which they had suspected. It was her so-called high school boyfriend, Barry Kimbrell. And again, I was doing the math on this because nobody pointed this out, but he's referred to as Peggy's high school boyfriend, but he is like 32 at this point and she's 21. So what is going on here? Yes. Yeah. He's more than a decade older than her. Which makes more sense why her parents were trying to prevent the relationship. So they had kind of dated when... Peggy was in high school and it looks like her parents had gotten involved. And then for whatever reason, they weren't seeing each other anymore. And Barry had actually gotten married and he had had two children, but it was clear that he had always carried a torch for Peggy. So Peggy says 
that she had introduced Barry and Porter as friends. And because Barry needed a doctor to go to. He was getting B12 shots, she said, for something. In his butt. I guess so. I guess so. And that the three of them got along very well. So they started doing things together, like going to the dog track and hanging out together and drinking. In her confession, Peggy said that she, Barry, and Porter were shooting the shit some six months before the murder. And Porter was talking about how he was intending on divorcing Fern and marrying Peggy, but that the divorce was going to cost him a lot of money. And he didn't want to lose all of that money, that it was just this pain in his ass that he had to go through this. And Peggy said that Barry said at that point, kind of offhand, huh, it would be a lot cheaper to just have her killed. And this began as a joke conversation that quickly turned into something more serious. So when Porter and Peggy decided to entertain this as a serious option, they went to Barry again, and he said that he could probably hire a guy he knew from Chicago to come do it for six grand. Wow. After a few months, he said that the guy had come down, he had cased Fern out, and that he didn't want to do it anymore. He said he wouldn't even do this murder for $100,000. But the authorities think that this imaginary hitman never existed. This was more... Barry trying to figure out whether he could kill Fern or not. And I guess he came up with the fact that he could. So he said that this guy was out, but he would step up and do it for $6,000 instead. Peggy said that she witnessed Porter give Barry $3,000 in cash altogether at one point, and then several hundred dollars here and there at different times. Literally, when they were together, he would just shove a bunch of cash in his pocket and say, here you go, just take this, put it in your pocket, don't look back. So she said she didn't know exactly how much Barry made from this deal if he ever got the full 6000 but he got at least 3000 and it seems like quite a bit occasionally afterwards. Peggy claimed that it was Barry's idea to use her gun and say that she had given it to Jerry because Jerry was dead. And I guess that Barry told... Peggy, that the cops could not use the fact that her gun was used against her unless they found the gun and then they could compare it. So why are you trusting Barry? Barry doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, God. And that was what had kind of put her in the tailspin was when they were talking about how they could prove that it was from the same gun with the bullets. And she's thinking, oh, shit. Can you believe it? Barry led me astray. So Porter gave Barry keys and told him to go through the back door, gave him a diagram of the house and a layout, told him when Fern was going to be away, when she would approximately come back. There was another night that he was foiled, I think because she ended up coming home too early. And then another night when she came home super duper late and he had already left. So this was actually, I think, the third attempt at her life. And Barry wanted Peggy to go with him. And Peggy said no, but she did, for some reason, follow him to the house when he drove over there to get in. Each time? I don't know if each time, but the night in question when he actually murdered her, she had. But then she had gone back to the motel to hang out with Doc. And the craziest part of it for me is that if you are hiring a hitman and you personally have an alibi, why not go to an all-night diner? Even if you have to go to a different town, why not go somewhere else? They were just 
hanging out. And then when they figured around the time of the murder, they went over to her parents. But also your parents are not a good alibi because people will assume your parents will lie for you. So all of this is crazy to me that they could not even find a convenience store to go hang out at where they very, you know, they fell and broke something. Even at the motel, maybe they knocked on a door and asked for some sugar. (laughs) No, I know. It's just, they're just like hanging out in the motel room being each other's alibi. Yeah, this is a really dumb alibi, guys. So that doesn't make any sense to me at all. So early the next morning, Peggy called Barry. He was crashing with a friend at a friend's house and asked him, did the job get done? And according to a murder in Cersei, he said, I did it. She had her big diamond necklace on, but I didn't have time to get it or her rings. Barry said that he did get her purse and that there were some cashier's checks in it. He said the reason he got in a hurry was because a car turned into the driveway after he'd killed her and while he was still in the house. We don't know who that car was or if it was just somebody turning around or something like that. Got it. Okay. Peggy went on to say, at breakfast the same morning at Bill's Grill, I met with the doctor and told him what Barry had told me. A few days after Fern's death, Barry and I went to get coffee and he told me he had the traveler's checks from Fern's purse and asked me if I wanted them. I told him no and he said he was going to mail the checks to the sheriff. He just wanted to get rid of them and he talked about burning them and he also told me there wasn't a whole lot of money in the purse and he also told her at that point that he had thrown her gun in the river but he did not say which one. It seems like throughout this confession that... Her motivation to be part of this, though it wasn't, I don't know if it was stated explicitly, was the desire to be Mrs. Dr. Rogers officially. That obviously this whole town is looking down on her. They're having this flagrant affair. And I think in her mind, if she became the actual doctor's wife, that there would be a different status level allowed to her. I also have to believe, even though she continued to deny had anything to do with the money, that she just kept saying she loved Porter. I have to think that she knows that she has got to get in on this legal marriage while the getting is good because this guy does not have long to live. So that's a bonus when she's already married to him. She's not going to have to stay with him very long. But it's not a bonus when his legal wife is still alive and she gets nothing as his dirty mistress. So it seems pretty clear. There's conveniences all around for all the criminals. Yeah. Except Barry. Did he get his six grand? Barry got some money, but I have a sneaking suspicion that Barry might have been in it for Peggy. Oh, really? We'll talk about evidence that they had a relationship concurrently in the next section. But my suspicion was it was not just for the money. It was for Peggy because he still loved her. And Barry wasn't a good guy either. I mean... Other than Fern, there's nobody that is very sympathetic in this situation. And of course, her poor children. Yeah. Now that they have Peggy arrested and they did go to Barry, who apparently got drunk with the arresting officer and confessed everything. Oh, my God. Which the arresting officer later said he did not drink with him. But one of the other officers who was on duty after the interrogation said that there was booze on his breath. But Barry also confessed, and he basically corroborated what Peggy said about how it all had gone down. So they've got Peggy first, then they got Barry, and now they're they're going for the head man, Dr. Porter Rogers himself. And they tell him, we know, we know what you did. We know that you ordered this whole thing. We know Barry did it. And we know because Peggy told us. And he was shocked 
that Peggy had opened her mouth. He would not believe that she had rolled on him. Would not believe it. Absolutely not. You're lying to me. You're trying to get me to say something. They said, no, you want to hear a recording? He said, yes, I do. So they play him the tape and there she is just saying, Dr. Porter this, Dr. Rogers had us do this. And he says, well, that sounds like her voice, but it must be coerced because she would never do that to me. And they're like, we have her in a holding cell right over there. You want me to bring her in and she'll tell you to your face that she turned on you? Whoa. Yeah. So intense. Also, can you imagine being Peggy right now? No. I can't imagine being Barry either. Like this whole world is falling down on him. Yep. And Barry, it's really sad because Barry had two young children. At this point, they bring Peggy in and he's looking at her and they're like, tell him, Peggy, tell him that you said everything. And she just looked at him and she said, I told them the truth. I told them everything. Oh, my God. He was like, well, I've always known Peggy to be a truthful girl, but I might need to consult my attorney. And it is unclear when and how he got the attorney. But before I believe his attorney was present, although after his rights had been read to him, he also confessed. So we got bing, 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 confessions across the board. Dr. Rogers' confession is more or less similar to what Barry and Peggy have been saying, except for he kind of paints himself more in the light of, I didn't really want this to happen but it was Barry's idea and then they got the ball rolling, but I did pay for it and I gave them the key. So he's trying to minimize, but the crucial parts are all still there in his confession as well. Okay, but like he's most to blame, the doctor. Yes, he's trying to minimize his role in the murder he created and set up, yes. The big question of why he would do this, he said this line that became all over the papers, all over the local media, he said, and this is in his written confession, so he said, and he, he wrote and signed this, the only reason I can explain Fern's killing was because I was hungry for Peggy Hale. Whoa. <laughs> he went on to say, and we wanted to get married and I needed her in my business. I feel that the only reason that Peggy got involved in this was because she loves me. The only thing I can say is that I'm sorry that it happened, but we just all got caught up in it and it happened. Barry's only interest was the money. There is one thing that I would like to say. I have never mistreated Fern in any way and have always provided her with a sufficient income and a personal income of her own. I've always provided for her, but she just stopped loving me over finances and sex. Huh. Really, sir? On his confession about how he murdered his wife, he's going to say, I would just like to say that I was always good to her and she decided to stop loving me so she deserved this? Wow. Just a little window into how this guy thinks. Exactly. Porter was arrested now, too, and they're all charged with murder. So they're all in the local jail, not together, I don't think, in separate cells. I'm envisioning them all just, like, kicking it <laughs> Like, together. just side by side. So Porter and Barry were both now arrested, and they're going down alongside the woman they both loved. And I say both loved because a letter to Peggy from Barry was intercepted. Now, this was before Barry was arrested, but after Peggy was. So she was already arrested. And I guess that her arrest was on the television. It was on the news. And he was saying that he had been watching the news with his kids. And then he writes to her the next thing. He wrote, while I was there at their house, all of that about you was on television. You should have heard what both boys had to say. That's his sons. 
They sure do love you and think an awful lot of you. They always look forward to your coming to see us. Too bad we're dot, dot, dot in this mess. Peggy, you'll never know my feeling for you. In the back of my mind, I always thought that some of the things you had done and talked to me about were just passing fancies in your life. And someday, after sowing wild oats and growing up with a little age and experience, that the future would work out for us. I still remember the words you said to me before I was about to marry. I said to myself then I was making a mistake and I couldn't live with myself getting married when I really loved you. That like gave me goosebumps. I know. So there's another thing too. Later on, a woman comes forward who is a 68-year-old woman who is a housekeeper at the motel where Porter was staying. And she somehow got involved in this group and being friends with them. And she said she became really good friends with Barry, but she was buying him motorcycles and buying things for his sons and giving him thousands of dollars. So later, Porter's defense attorney is going to say that these two were in a scam to pretty much play these older people to romance scam them out of all of this money and that they were in on it together. Now that letter shows that obviously Barry had some real feelings for Peggy. So I think it could be either that Peggy and Barry were really together. There's later evidence that shows that he was at her trailer quite a bit. It looks like by that letter, she would go visit him with his children and that he had a key to her trailer. So were they the real couple and that they were planning all of this together? Because Barry was allegedly the one that came up throughout that idea. Maybe they had talked about it. Maybe she said, I can't suggest he kills his wife. So you suggest it. He doesn't know we're together. And then once we get his wife out of the picture, we get married and we either knock him off or we just wait till he dies. And then she's left with his entire estate and she could have told him, your sons can move into that big old house and we can raise a family there together. So we don't know whether they were in on it or could have been that Peggy's just playing everyone. Yep. She could have been playing absolutely everyone. What they didn't think about, though, was that people investigate murders. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I mean, Peggy could have just said after years of abuse at the hands of men, like, fuck y'all, I'm going to get mine. I don't care who has to pay the cost. So maybe she's the diabolical. It certainly seems she's the center of all of this. Whether or not she was going to also toss Barry away like trash, we do not know. We do not know whether they were in on it. But this is definitely the angle that I would have gone for if I was Porter's defense attorney. I would say there's all this evidence that they were in on this together, that Porter had absolutely no idea. He wasn't the one who did any of this. Somehow Peggy scammed the house keys. She had been to his house. So they could have said Peggy gave Barry the keys. Peggy was the one who instructed all of this. The doctor knew nothing about it. He's guilty of having an affair and that's all. They didn't go that far, but they did argue in February of 1975 when Porter did go to trial that he was suffering from organic brain disease. Basically that some people lose their hearing as they get older, some people lose their eyesight, and he was losing brain functioning. And there were some MRIs done that showed that his brain was shrinking, but all of our brains shrink as we get older. And the doctors could say that it looked like he did have 
advanced brain deterioration in some capacity. It was very hard to detect in 1974 how diminished that would be and what it would actually diminish about your capabilities. Yes. And on the prosecution side, they believed that when he did these tests, he pretended not to remember things or pretended he couldn't do certain things so that it would seem like his condition was more advanced than it was. I think at the end of the day, you cannot blame his scumbaggery on his aging brain because he was doing counterfeit shit in his 20s. This guy had been running criminal operations for his entire life. It's not like he hit 65 and his brain started going. And that's the moment where he started gambling and cheating and running scams. He was doing stuff like this and being unfaithful way before. Yeah, in his 20s. So they went with he is an enfeebled old man who didn't know what he was doing. Who can have sex five times a day. (laughs) Yes. Can still get it up. Yeah, this old, old man who can't do anything. And this little, forgive me for using this word, but this is how they were portraying her, slutty seductress who is a gold digger and wants his money, just saw that feeble old man that she could take advantage of. Oh, my God. So that's really what they, where they were going with the defense, is that he had nothing to do with this. He was used and abused by Peggy, who was sleeping around, who was promiscuous, who was, even though she denied it, was sleeping with Barry. Obviously, Peggy was the star witness. Now, she did not get a deal to testify. Really? She did not. And I think it's because the prosecution had such a strong case against her that they didn't really need to bargain that much. They said, we're not making you a deal. But if you do testify at Barry and Porter's trials, we will consider dropping your charges down to second-degree murder. Now, first-degree murder can land her in the electric chair. And the optics are not looking good for Peggy. So she decides to do this, and this benefits the prosecution because when the defense says, well, are you just here because you're trying to get out of prison, she can say, quite honestly, I don't have a deal. They have promised me nothing. Yeah, and that looks good for her, yeah. That looks good for her as a witness. It looks good for the prosecution. So that's why they didn't give her a deal because it's always kind of a gamble. Like, how much are you going to give? How much are you going to take to get that testimony? And at this point, the law enforcement is holding all the cards. So she did not get a deal. She did testify. She said basically what we know that she's already said about how this all went down, except for one other thing that was horrible. She said that she hadn't mentioned it before because she knew how it would make Porter look and she was still with him at the time of her first confession. But he had also insisted that Barry rape Fern when he killed her as well. His 68-year-old wife, mother of his children. What the fuck? She said it came up twice that he wanted he wanted it to look like a sexual assault and a burglary. And so that they would be looking at that motivation. And Barry said, no. He said, I can't do that. He told her. And then he's, he said, tell Porter I can't. I'm not going to do that. I can't do it. I can't physically do that. Yeah. She was not sexually assaulted at all. Wow, that's horrific. Horrific. As somebody you were married to for over 40 years. Can you do like a second degree rape charge? No, because also... 
the defense attorney made a big deal about how she had never mentioned it the first time. It's not in her original deposition. And now she's just trying to trot it out for court. And she's a liar. And everybody knows she's a liar. Why would she make that up? I think Barry said the same thing, by the way. But they both did not say it right away because it's really horrible to comprehend. And on cross, Peggy was really lit up because the defense attorney was bringing up all of this shit from her past. And I do not like Peggy. I'm telling you guys, she's a murderer. Don't like her. Don't wish good things for her. No excuses. There's a lot of people who've been sexually assaulted and preyed upon that don't go around murdering. So I'm not a fan of Peggy, but even I felt bad for her on the stand because he's telling her that she led her Sunday school teacher on when she was a 13-year-old girl, that she was making him believe that those advances were warranted and that she had a history of seducing older men, her Sunday school teacher, her high school teacher. Porter was just another one in a long line of men she used to get whatever she wanted. It's just like, I mean... Honestly, sometimes it feels like we're going backwards. But then when I read stuff like that, at least I know that wouldn't fly anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. That came up. And I really do think that if it had been me, I would have hammered more her relationship with Barry. Because it's clear that there's a relationship there. There's a romantic relationship. I would have focused more on the two of them plotting against Dr. Porter Instead of just ripping her apart for things that were not her fault and subsequent sexual activity. But it just shows a weak defense. Yes. The defense also presented witnesses that said the doctor had been falling asleep at work. He had been mixing up prescriptions. This was supposed to be evidence of his mental decline. This makes me think that he really was maybe not doing so well. I really don't know because Mickey, the woman who had been maybe in a weird relationship with Barry was also the head housekeeper at this motel. And she said that no one ever wanted to clean the doctor's room because he was getting older and it seemed like he was having trouble making it to the toilet and that there was human feces like on the floor in the bathroom and that she did testify that she didn't think he was capable of taking care of himself. It's like, if he's not capable of taking care of himself, why are you letting him treat patients? Yeah. And like, are they actually boning five times a day? I don't know. She might have just made that up. I don't know how you're boning anyone who's shitting their pants all day. Oh, I haven't had breakfast yet. It's too early. (laughs) So I don't know who's right, who's wrong. I do know that this makes it very interesting and complex because who is victimizing who? The young woman who there's an unbalanced power. He's her boss. He has money. She doesn't. Normally in these situations, you would say this older man is preying on this young woman. But given that he is so elderly, that he is a senior citizen. And again, if any of you guys are in your 70s, I do not mean you because my dad's 76 and he could be this guy's son, basically. That's how younger he looks. It's just this man in this time in the world. So was she taking advantage of a senior citizen? It seems like Both of them are users and also victims. Yeah, and just not good people. And not good people. The only real victim in this, of course, is Fern Rogers and her children and her loved ones because she died just trying to live her life and keep her family together and be a good mother and grandmother. Well, the jury did not forget that. They did not forget about Fern and who the real victim in this story was. 
they only deliberated for about two and a half hours before returning a... Guilty as fuck. Verdict, exactly. Disgraced Dr. Porter Rogers was sentenced to life in prison, and for him... Two years. Definitely, definitely a life sentence, for sure. He was appealing for, I think it was like something that was being like let in, that it shouldn't have. Oh, his confession, because he also said that he didn't make that confession, and that they had him sign a paper, and then they typed up his confession and pretended it was his confession, and that really he hadn't said any of those things. Oh, my God. But this guy also on the stand tried to say at the beginning that he just had a working relationship with Peggy despite all this evidence. Maybe he really was senile. I mean, maybe she just made everything up. Oh, my God. (laughs) (sighs) Nobody believed this stuff anyway. So they actually let him stay out of jail during this appeals process, but not for very long. Because in January of 1976, he was also convicted of the insurance fraud scam. And he had to go to federal prison for that while they were deciding whether he was going to go to federal prison (laughs) for the murder. Hammer is coming down, sir. He got, I think, an additional three years for the insurance fraud to be tacked on. That's it? Well, I think they were like, oh, God, he's already going to go to prison for life, which, again, is going to be less than this sentence, they thought. So things were not looking good for Porter. He's actually in real prison now. Very went to trial. He tried to argue that his confession was taken while he was under the influence, which is how it came up that he might have been drinking with that police officer. And also that Porter and Peggy, I believe that his story was that they were going to pay him to take the fall, essentially, and that they did it somehow, and that he was just the scapegoat and the fall guy. Okay. But that did not work. Barry was found guilty and sentenced to spend the rest of his natural life in prison. And he'd have to be there a lot longer than old Doc Rogers because Barry was only 33 years old when this happened. But that's not the end of Barry. Only two years later, after he went in, a 35-year-old Barry made headlines once again when he escaped from prison. Stop. He and another inmate had been working the kitchen detail before they stowed away in a vehicle, which then carried the secret convicts out of the prison facility. Wow. Barry was on the run for a whopping 88 days (gasps) before the F... Yeah, he was out for a while. 88 days before the FBI tracked him down, where they found him in the closet of a Little Rock apartment clutching a pistol. But they got him back into custody with no problems. According to a murder in Cersei, Barry later claimed that an unnamed person had left him a vehicle and $10,000 so that he could escape, and that he had actually traveled to a dozen states, including New York, New Jersey, and California, before he had, for some reason, come back to Arkansas. I do not think this was the case. I think that he was trying to bolster his story about them paying him off for taking the fall. And that was why there was 10 grand in the car because it was saying, here, we'll help you because you lied for us. That doesn't really make any sense when they're also imprisoned. (laughs) It's not like they got away with it. He never did get a taste of the outside world ever again, though. On May 3rd, 1992, Barry died at the age of 49 of natural causes while still incarcerated. Wow, that's young. It is young. They didn't say what the natural causes were, but I'm assuming it just means he was sick in some capacity. 
So Peggy did receive her consideration. She pled guilty to the reduced charge of second-degree murder and was given the maximum sentence, which was 21 years in prison. However, she could get paroled earlier. And this sentencing happened almost exactly one year to the day from when Fern was murdered. And due to the year she spent in jail already, good behavior and overcrowding, Peggy was released only five years later in 1980. Unbelievable. She spent a grand total of not even quite six years in prison. She was 27 years old when she got out in August of 1980. And they allowed her to move to another state. She apparently moved. She got married. She had kids. She had a job. She has had a whole ass life. I don't even know where she is. I don't know what she's doing. I tried to Google it, but I'm pretty sure she changed her name. It does not appear, though, at least from the journalists who wrote this book, Nal and Alan, that she reoffended. I think that we'd probably know that because if somebody involved in this high profile of a murder case reoffends, usually it makes some sort of news beat. Even if she did change her name, yeah. So she's out there living her life. Only a couple months after Peggy was released, on November 4th, 1980, Dr. Porter Rogers died at the age of 76 years old in prison in the Hospital of Natural Causes. He was later buried in an Arkansas cemetery with an epitaph that read, an exceptional man. Exceptionally awful. Wow. Unbelievable. I have one uh, Jessipedia fun fact. Jessipedia fun fact. So the day that Porter Rogers died, November 4th, 1980. Is your parents? Yes, it's their wedding day. Yeah, wedding day. Wow. Yep, wedding day. And so it's my parents' wedding day. That was the day they got married. They eloped. And it was also the day that Ronald Reagan was elected president, which this is the second part of the Jessipedia fun fact, is that I am the fourth person on my father's side of the family to get married on November 4th. It was my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, and then Nathaniel and I eloped five months after meeting on the same day. And my parents did it secretly, and so did we, at least for a little while. and. I have to uh, thank my great-grandparents for getting married on Election Day because it's a really romantic anniversary. <laughs> it's always our anniversary falls on, like, Election Day or at least Election Week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you know, nothing really gets you in the mood like a nail-biting election. Totally. <laughs> in conclusion, if you are a dirty mistress, you should not attack your lover's wife, especially not in public. This is just, there's tacky and then there's, mm. Also, I think we're pretty good at this at this point, but I think it's always advised to find a doctor that focuses on a speciality, not all of the things. <laughs> you don't want your same doctor to be your OBGYN and GP and surgeon. And street drug dealer, apparently, as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's what they say. Jack of all trades, master of none. And uh, you might enjoy that in your combination Asian food kitchen in your small town, but not in your doctor. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so nobody ends up murdered in Searcy, Arkansas. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 